cameras back to primarily announcing the disastrous judgment that is coming because they are not repentant. Uh, so, would somebody read in Jeremiah 4, verses uh, 5 to 13? Declare in Judah as they claim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. There is a standard for Zion, please forsake me, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone out from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make their land waste. Their cities will be ruined without inhabitants. For this put on sack sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back to us. In that day, because the Lord, courage shall fail, both king and officials, the priest shall be appalled, and the prophets astounded. And I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived these people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A man, for this comes to me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he who comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. So, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem the following. Blow the trumpet in the land. In this case, the trumpet symbolizes what? War. This is kind of like the warning. Almost you could say blow the air raid siren or something like that. You know, the sign and the warning of the imminent invasion. Cry aloud and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. You know, they would go into the fortified cities uh, as a refuge. Particularly if you lived out in the countryside, there's no defense. The fortified city had a wall around it. It would provide you at least temporary protection. So when an enemy army would approach, everybody would scurry into the cities. He's saying it's time. Because the enemy is approaching. Uh, he says, lift up a standard toward Zion. Seek refuge. He says, I'm bringing evil from the north and great destruction. There's going to be a terrible... Uh, evil coming. God is behind it. It's coming from the north. From the north is almost a Jeremiah trademark. He uses that all the time. The majority of the worst enemies of Israel would invade the land from the north. Places like Assyria, Babylon, Persia were all in the Fertile Crescent on the other side, over in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley area and even on to the uh, east of that. They were almost due east from Israel as the crow flies, but that was desert in between the, the Tigris and Euphrates River and the Jordan. So they would not come across the desert. They'd come up around the Euphrates River, around, that's why they call it the Fertile Crescent and they'd come down into Israel from the north. So he's predicting here the Babylonian invasion. And one of the things that's helpful to recognize in this is this is the Lord's work. I am bringing evil from the north. Often, people do not see the hand of God behind even political events and invasions and things like this. But this was not just the Babylonian idea. God was bringing the Babylonians in to punish them. He describes this as a lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. You could imagine the lion leaving the lair. The lion eager for prey. You don't want to meet a hungry lion. Um, and, and, and this is going to be total devastation to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitants. So much for fleeing into the walls of the cities. Those defensive measures we've nullified 
because the cities themselves will be destroyed by the enemy invaders. Comments and questions on those uh, through verse 7. Appreciate Jeremiah being very descriptive and very moving with his presentation of the invasion. So, what does he tell them to do in verse 8? Sackcloth. Sackcloth, which was a symbol of mourning. You might as well start mourning now. <laughs> the invasion's upon you. There's uh, no use holding out. Um, and, and it's interesting, he encourages them to mourn as opposed to now encouraging repentance. They didn't repent, they refused to repent, therefore you might as well put on sackcloth and mourn for the fierce anger of the Lord. Not the fierce anger of Babylon, but the army may be Babylonian, but the Lord is the one who's directing them. He is engaged in this terrible military exercise against his own people, against his own beloved city, and it's inescapable. The fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. There is no way to avoid this. Once they refuse repentance, the divinely ordained destruction will come. So powerful language to really show God's execution of wrath against this impenitent nation. Thoughts? So in verse 9, what's going to happen with the people's leaders? <laughs> yes, why? How are they going to be feeling? They'll lose their courage. Scared. They'll lose their courage. That's exactly right. Their morale was shattered. You know, they didn't think it would ever happen. Certainly not to them. Certainly not to Jerusalem. And, and so the bottom fell out for them. And they just uh, were totally dumbfounded. Here are the people who are supposed to be organizing the defenses and rallying the people to fight. And they're scared to death. They're, they're quivering. This includes the heart of the king, the heart of the princes, the priests, the prophets, the governmental leadership, the religious leadership. When they are overwhelmed, we're in big trouble. And that's what he's showing. Look at what Jeremiah responds to God with. Make you scratch your head for a minute. What is Jeremiah accusing God of? Deception. Why? Why would he accuse God of that? Micah. Because he has promised security and saying that things will be well with you, but he's also promising that it will come from the north. Okay, exactly. He says, you've utterly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, you will have peace. Did God say that? Yep. Okay. Maybe he's talking about the conditional promises of peace. I happen to have a different approach to this verse. Is he talking about the false prophets? I think so. I think he's saying, well, you told through the false prophets you will have peace. You see... He didn't send them, but they ran. Chapter 23 will be a long chapter against the false prophets. They spoke in God's name. That is, they said they were speaking for God. It wasn't really God that said that. In this particular case, Jeremiah offers this objection. God just goes right on with prophesying the destruction. He doesn't even pause to mention it. But I think, yes. And also, I think maybe the reason Jeremiah is accusing God of deception is because he let the false prophets deceive them. Could be. Of course, the people are responsible for believing the false prophets and for paying the false prophets and for wanting that. But yeah, that may be what he's saying. You know, these false prophets, when they have consistently preached peace, peace, when there was no peace, and he'll talk about that in a couple of chapters, 
What did that do for the people? When false prophets give words of false comfort, what happens? It dampens their resolve to make changes. Exactly. It lulls them into a false sense of security that hurts them. What happens when your doctor, I don't think this normally happens, but when your doctor, through a, a, a misplaced sense of compassion, gives you good news about the cancer test that really came back bad. He says, oh, it's great. No problem. Don't have cancer. And you're really all eaten up with cancer. What does that do for the patient? because then they can't do anything about the cancer. They don't seek treatment. You know, do you want a doctor that will always tell you good things no matter what? You know, a doctor who's just too nice to ever break to you the news that something's wrong? You don't really want that doctor. At the, at the moment, that might be pleasant. But if you had the choice, you would not choose a doctor like that. Because it doesn't help. In the long run, it hurts you. You don't want a lying doctor. They don't need lying prophets. We've got a lot of successful preachers, I'm talking about we as a country, that trade on making people feel good. That, that tell people, no matter how they're living, oh, God's got something wonderful in store for you. <laughs> you know, you, everything's going to be great with God. Because people want to hear those words. But that really deceives people and keeps them from seeking godly remedies that will turn them back to God. You don't want a positive preacher. You even hear some Christians saying things like, you know, I go to church to feel good. I don't need somebody down my back all the time. You know, it's just so discouraging to always hear about the wrong things we're doing. I want somebody to tell me good things that build me up. Now granted, there needs to be a proper balance. And the Lord certainly does say positive things that we need to speak of and we need to present the Bible hope. However, is a message of hope an appropriate message for this audience? You know, messages of hope are for those who turn back to God. Now, there's the hope presented if you'll repent, God will accept you. He's already said that. But offering hope to unrepentant people is not a proper message. Forget about whether you like the message or not. Is it accurate? Is it the message God would want preached? That's the question. Jeremiah was speaking faithfully. The false prophets weren't. Jeremiah seems to be complaining that God was behind these false prophecies. In other passages, God will deal with that. In this particular case, it's a blip on the radar. God still got a message of judgment to preach through Jeremiah, and he continues doing it here. Comments and questions through verse 10. Cameron. What chapter did you say was about the false prophets? Well, for example, chapter 23 is the chapter that really deals with the false prophets, starting in verse 9. You've got other passages that mention, for example, 6.14 says, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. And uh, so you've got a lot of passages, but 23, starting in verse 9, is a devastating expose of the false prophets. Peter? Sometimes I think we're not completely <coughs> deceived, but as, as long as there's somebody saying what we kind of want to hear, it gives us somebody to quote. What so-and-so said, and if there are a lot of so-and-sos out there saying that, then we, we'll make ourselves feel better. Yes, you're exactly right. Maybe it doesn't totally convince us but it does numb some of our feeling of guilt and some of our concern over our condition. If it can just give us enough, you know, faint false hope, it may keep us from determining to make the changes we need to make. Kimberly. Are we trying to, well, we can apologize now because helping each other, we shouldn't 
there are times when we like help <coughs> others, you know, just, <coughs> just to things they want to hear, just you know, to make them happy, but not things they need to hear to make them holy. And we struggle with that. Absolutely, and you think about this. I use this scenario once in a while, but it's, it's actually practical and you can make other applications off of it. But what if you have a Christian brother or sister who comes to you for advice? And they're asking you about this situation. You know, maybe say they've got this boyfriend. And they really like this boyfriend, but he's not a Christian. And he's dragging her to some places she shouldn't be and to do some things she shouldn't do, but she really likes him, she's afraid to lose him, and he really cares about her, and what do you think? Well now, think about that Christian young lady who's come to you for advice. When she goes to her worldly friends for advice, what are they gonna tell her? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's fine. You know, don't be so worried about it. You know, he's really a good guy. He'll probably change, you know, whatever. So she comes to you for advice. Now, what if you tell her the same thing her worldly friends do? You know, you may be kind of her last hope. If we don't help our brothers and sisters by telling them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it, who will? You can't think, well, this person wants me to say this, and they'll like me better if I say this. If that's what you think, you're selfish. Tell them what would be best for them to hear. Don't think, well, I want them to like me, and they want me to say this. There's a big temptation to preach peace when God's message is warped. Other thoughts? Yeah. It's like what Jesus says to the rich young man, you know, in Mark's account, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. And he had so much going for him and so much that Jesus could have complimented and everyone else is patting him on the back and he runs up to Jesus. He's excited. And Jesus is like, here's what you need. Absolutely. I mean... Maybe, I don't know, is there anything you're really good at? Say you're really good at a sport, and you really know a lot about that sport. And maybe you've got a younger friend who is, I don't know, around here, or maybe it's basketball. And so they're, they're training, and they're practicing, and they really want to be good at basketball. And they come to you to help them. Now, what they'd like for you to do is say, man, you're awesome, you're doing great. But you know that the mechanics of their shot is all wrong. And they'll never be able to shoot well when they do it like that. Do you tell them the bad news? Do you tell them, look, you've got to start over again? You've got to do it this way and not that way? It's not going to work well long term? Or do you just make them feel good? You know, so often, the, ble the, the blessing to them is to tell them the truth. Bill? I go to college is funny. It's not, he says, the preacher says, yeah, you're doing great. It's funny gets in their face and tells them you're wrong. Speaking the truth a lot. And what kind of coach do you really want? Do you want to feel good or do you want to do better? Do you want to win the games or do you just want to somebody be a cheerleader and tell you you're great? You're losing every game, but you're a wonderful kid. You know... What kind of people do we surround ourselves with? You have this questionable relationship with this guy. Do you even go to your Christian friend, especially the one who always tells you the truth honestly? Or do you say, I don't want to hear what she has to say. She's always so negative. <laughs> well, <laughs> negative sometimes means honest. And, and, but it tests our heart and our character when we see what type of advice we're really seeking. Thoughts? Yes? Absolutely. If we don't hear the negative, honest truth, 
we may never be motivated to change. That's exactly right. Kimberly? I think that's why a lot of people fall for false doctrines because God tells us what we need to hear, and it's right here. And they don't want to hear it. They want to hear what they want to hear. The false doctrine is more pleasing. Mm -hmm. Yes, Laura. And if you're honest with them, they'll be honest with you. Yes. We need honest relationships. You know, it may be painful in the short run, but it's a blessing in the long run. Again. It's easier to make spiritual decisions based on the standards or expectations, especially fellow Christians are making. And mainly because they're easier, um, and it's harder to look at the stance that God sets. And we'll listen to that. You're exactly right. Lauren? I see a problem when family members fall away from God, that people want to just reach out to them and not separate themselves from them. They just they want to be a cheerleader. They don't want to tell them what that person is doing wrong. And they don't follow God's word at all. They just keep going to that person and treat them like a normal person, a normal family member. When really what they should be doing is being a coach and telling them what's wrong. And I think we really struggle that, especially in the church and just in our normal lives. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, Travis. I don't know if I'd thought about this in this way before, but um, this... It has happened to me from the aspect that that I've I've tried to be that person for someone, and they've they've rejected it and and ended up leaving the Lord for that, and that was very difficult for me, with feelings of guilt and feelings, you know, should I have said anything? Should I? Because then I was one they resented more than anyone else. But I don't know if I've ever thought of it in this context. That that's what we do to God, and that's God would feel that way, and that strong emotion. Yes. You know, I suppose, depending on your mentality, you might uh, go to a different doctor because you don't like what your doctor's telling you, or you might uh, play for a different coach because you feel like your coach is just always getting after you. But, you know, a lot of that depends on whether or not you want to get better or whether or not you just want to feel good, want to be happy. If you really want to be a great basketball player, you want a tough coach who really knows the game and who will really tell you what you need to hear. If you just want to have fun, go to an easy coach who never makes you work. You'll lose every game, but it'll be a blast, you know? And so we really need to think about what are we looking for. We need to be the kind of friend people need, even if they don't like them. John. Well, Proverbs says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And the after, afterward part is probably the key there. Yes. So, some, some may never, but... Most of us never initially like to hear the hard message. Exactly. Hurts. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can remember the sting of some rebukes that I really have not liked, but I have respected and appreciated and understood later the love the person had for me in giving that, even though it was painful and it still hurts sometimes to think about. But I needed it. It was, the, it was a much bigger blessing than the person had in the center. Kimberly. I think that's why people usually fall away because they don't want to hear what God has to tell them because God tells us what we need to hear. He doesn't try to like sugarcoat it and make us you know, happy by telling us you know, we're not going to hell. And that's what false doctrine is. I mean, it's helpful to look at passages like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet of God speaking God's message. How much of this message is very plain, direct, negative? We are in this mentality where you're not supposed to ever tell anybody they've done anything wrong. You know, God was not hampered by that philosophy. We need to be more like the Lord. We need to let our reflections on the text of Scripture shape how we see things. The Scriptures need to imprint on our philosophy, our perspective. And it's going to mean we're not going to be with the culture. And we're not going to be acting and speaking like most people do. 
you know, in the world without a doubt, the majority of pastors and preachers and so forth, you know, try to help people feel good more than they try to help them do well. And we've got to not have that attitude. Look at what he continues to say in verse 11. There's this scorching wind from the bare heights that comes against his people. Now, there were various kinds of winds. And this wind was not a chastening wind to just blow away the chaff but save the grain. What, this wind was too strong for that. This was the wind of God's judgment. Now, the fact that the wind came from the barren heights, that's the place previously associated with the idols. So you see it's because of the idolatry the wind is coming. You also see that God was not phased by Jeremiah's criticism. He continues talking about the destruction. So you think about this terrible wind. What should we think about? We've got some experiences. What we, we, we know about breezes, cooling breezes and things like that, that are pleasant in the summertime. But don't we have some experiences with some uh, destructive winds? What would we think about? <laughs> Tornadoes or hurricanes? Why? There are winds that are not pleasant, refreshing breezes. That's the kind of wind he's talking about here. He says, behold, he goes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Of the 59 occurrences of the verb ruined in the Old Testament, 59 times in the Old Testament, 26 of them are in Jeremiah. Kind of shows you the uh, mood of the book. It's a lot of devastation language because the judgment, the destruction was imminent. Comments? And you lift up the, the standard verse 6. Usually you think of raising the banner or the flag as uh, you know, charging on and this is kind of, it's back here, retreat into the, into the hole. Not that it's going to do you any good. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, this, uh, this raising the standard almost is a sign for the enemies to attack. It's, uh, Here's where you flee to. Yeah. You come to the flag. Yeah, that's right. There's one of the psalms we were looking at. It's like in the 60s or somewhere. It has a similar type thing of raising the, the flag or the banner, but it's more of the retreat. I don't know if it's refer, you know, anything related or what, how that would be, but... Uh, just an interesting thought because there's other places obviously God's banners lifted and you know marching on and, and charging forward but it's used a couple times as the, the destructions come and raise the flag and run back to it yeah, yeah. good point I don't remember which song that is I'm not real good in the 60s so but yeah good point the scorching wind I think of a uh, desert dust storm yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Um, 14 to 18. O oh, Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming, announce to Jerusalem, the seizures come from a distant land, they shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, are they against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you, this is your doom, and it is bitter, it has reached your very heart. Now, the brief exhortation in verse 14 is interesting. What does he ask them to do? Their hearts. Isn't that an interesting expression? You would normally think of washing as applying more to the skin. But he wants them to wash their hearts of evil. Don't just abstain from wickedness outwardly, but renounce the evil desires of your heart. That's what we have to cleanse. The sins proceed from the evil heart. 
How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? I think a lot of times in trying to help people to change from their sinful behavior, we focus too exclusively on how to get the behavior itself to change. You know, what kind of techniques are there to actually stop you from doing the wrong thing? But if we understand that the evil deeds come from the evil heart, we really need to purify the heart and work on changing the, the desires, changing the attitude, changing the mind. And that will lead to the change of behavior. The behavior modification efforts often fail because if the heart hasn't changed, they won't work long term. I think that's a lot to think about. Um, and, and, and so I, God is really going to the root of the problem here. Wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. That's what they need to do. Comments or thoughts about that idea? You can probably think about that one for a while and be helpful, right? Usually just trying to modify your behavior gives you faster results because it's uh, just kind of on the surface and, you know, you can reward yourself with some other thing or you can bribe yourself um, with changing your character and then changing your actions accordingly. It takes longer. Yeah, it does. It's much more effective. The other is just a short-term fix that doesn't last. Yes, Steve. For the analogy sometimes of, uh, and it's not a sin to eat at McDonald's, but you, it's like when you look at the back of the little thing they put on your tray and it's got like the nutrition facts on it about the different items on the menu, and then you're like, wait, I ate what? <laughs> you know, and, and it's it's like when you realize what's in it, it doesn't change the taste of it, but it makes you not want it because you know what it does, and you know like, and it helps you like not want that. Not because it tastes less good to you, not just because, like, why well, didn't you stop that, but because, like, you realize what it is about that that's, that's not good for you in that case. But, of course, with sin, what it does to God, what it does uh, in our relationship with Him, the kingdom of God. Yes. Amen. Great point. Kimberly. That's why God said, above all else, guard your heart, because that's where it all starts. Amen. It does. <laughs> Definitely. Daniel. To me, when when he uses the word heart here in talking to Jerusalem, that brings me back to chapter 3 when he said that Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. So Judah was only returning in pretense. And in chapter 4, God's saying, by the way, I want the whole thing this time. Just, if you haven't figured that out by all this destruction language by now, <laughs> I want the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. The return in pretense didn't fix anything. It must be a reformation, a purification of the heart. Good point. And so then he moves right into, again, this war imagery. Here's the voice, the uh, warning voice from Dan. And then it proclaims wickedness from Mount Ephraim. And now it's proclaimed over Jerusalem that besiegers come from a far country. And the cities of Judah, uh, you know, this invasion is uh, rapidly approaching. Where was Dan? Yes, remember that wasn't where Dan was supposed to be. But they didn't, they never conquered their territory. Remember in Judges 18, they send spies up and they find a place way up in the north, the city of Laish, actually belonged to the Sidonians. And they conquered that. So they were the very northern outpost. So, of course, if the enemy invades from the north, Dan's the first place they come to. Where's Ephraim? Middle. Yeah, right in the heart of that uh, central uh, mountainous ridge. Uh, and then where's Jerusalem? Yeah, kind of on the Judah-Benjamin border. The cities of Judah even below that. Wow. This thing is advancing uh, in uh, breakneck speed here. And, and there's no escape. Uh, he says, like a watchman of a field, they are against her roundabout. They've sort of circled her. Maybe he's thinking about them encircling and besieging Jerusalem. 
Why? Because she has rebelled against me. Doesn't even say she sinned. Even stronger, she's rebelled. Your ways and your deeds have brought these things to you. The consequences are a part of their actions. You did it, therefore you, you are suffering these things. Comments and thoughts. Kimberly? It's just that God sees us as a whole, like all of us as one, you know? And that's how he sees them, mm -hmm. you know? All of us as one, and that's why it's really important for us to help each other, telling each other what we need to hear, or for us to you know, be more like God. There wasn't much faithful left in Judah, that's for sure. <laughs> Other thoughts through verse 18. Okay. Uh, 19 to 22. Let's say Jeremiah's reaction. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But 19 to 22. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I rise in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot be silent. For I have heard the sound of a trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. I shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. So, how is Jeremiah feeling about all this devastation? Heartbroken. Heartbroken, anguished, his worst nightmare is about to become a reality and he can't contain his feelings, his anguish, his soul, my heart is pounding. He knows what's about to happen. One of the bad things about being a prophet is God shows you ahead of time the terrible, devastating judgment. You know, it kind of reminds you, what if you could have a vivid vision? of an impending nuclear holocaust or something like that. And it would just grieve you. You see the judgment crashing in on you. He sees the sound of the trumpet, alarm of war, disaster on disaster, lands devastated, tents devastated. You know, it's just horrible. Jeremiah is seeing it all. He knows exactly what's going to happen. It's not a good sign when a prophet of God is in anguish over the visions he's receiving. You know, uh, you, 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 sometimes you see uh, like uh, war veterans that have, they're tormented by nightmares of, of what they've seen in the past. Well, God's prophets were sometimes tormented by nightmares of what they foresaw in the future. And that's exactly where Jeremiah is at. This is a horrible experience for him, having to see all this and know all of this. And I want you to notice how this goes. He says, how long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Verse 21. For my people are foolish. They know me not. Huh? Do you see what happened? What happened there? God started talking. God started talking. Now... When did Jeremiah stop talking and God start? I, yeah, maybe. Or, I don't know. You know, it's kind of interesting because this happens several times in Jeremiah, sometimes in other prophets too. Jeremiah is a spokesman for God. God is speaking through Jeremiah, through his words, even in some ways through his life, through this anguish, for example. And so there's sometimes when the distinction between the words and heart of the prophet and the words in the heart of God is kind of blurred. Um, you know, he kind of moves from one to the other imperceptibly. And I really think that's because Jeremiah's experiences in this and the Lord's experiences are the same. You know, in one sense, perhaps we ought to think about verse 19 as being even God's reaction, God's deep grief and anguish. Because if there's anyone who loved 
Jerusalem more than Jeremiah did. It's the Lord. And, and, and so you can imagine the Lord's anguish at Jerusalem's destruction being even greater than Jeremiah's. And one of the things that Jeremiah helps us see, he is not only a weeping prophet, God is a weeping God. God grieves at the destruction that he must bring upon his people. That's an amazing thought. But I think that's interesting how this works. So I, I don't know exactly where the line is. Clearly 22 is God. But I don't know if we ought to see maybe some of the earlier verses as being in part God. At any rate, in 22, he says, My people are foolish, they know me not. <laughs> They're stupid children that have no understanding. Don't you love the end of verse 22? They are shrewd, utterly brilliant to do evil. <laughs> That's great. But to do good, they do not know. You don't have a clue about doing what's right. But these guys are geniuses in doing wrong. That's probably not something you want your genius to be in. Don't get a degree in wrongdoing. <laughs> but that's exactly what they've done. Comments? Thoughts? How do we know Jeremiah even spoke? Since all of this could be taken out of God's speaking, because he's anguished over uh, his people going to be destroyed. So how do we know Jeremiah ever did speak in this? Okay. Uh, maybe not. You know, you would kind of assume that when he speaks of my soul, my heart, we're kind of envisioning that as being Jeremiah. But if you look earlier, look at verse 17, like watchmen of the field there against her roundabout because she's rebelled against me, declares the Lord. God has been speaking before and after. So you might be able to make an argument it's not Jeremiah at all. I suspect it's somewhat both. Uh, but, but it is difficult. Maybe it just doesn't matter. You know, in, in 19, if we see it as the Lord, if we see it as Jeremiah, if we see it as both, it, all, all of the above are true. Jeremiah grieved, the Lord grieved even more. Stephen. We see God doing that other places in Scripture where sometimes people express what God is thinking and not even intending to do it. You see Job a lot of times in his book expressing things in his anguish, or even the friends sometimes expressing things that are true, you know, not necessarily meaning to express some truth. They're just kind of venting back and forth. But God speaks sometimes through those things. And you have to, take, you know, figure out, okay, what's which one is which. But I think with the prophets especially, when it is from God, thus says the Lord, uh, we just see God's heart throughout, whether or not it's the prophet Specifically speaking, Caiaphas prophesied that uh, one would have to die for the nation, and he sure didn't intend to be. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, how about 23 to 26? I will fear in the storms and at the heavens, and the light is gone. Looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its town lay in ruins before the Lord, for his fierce anger. Wow. What do you see happening here? Yeah. Decreation. You know, the earth, formless and void. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, Genesis 1. The mountains are quaking, the hills are moved, no man, birds fled, wilderness, no cities. You know, it's like a film being run backwards. You know, we're just going back, unraveling creation, um, disintegration, disorder. You see, you know, everything really being affected. The earth, the heavens, the mountains, the hills, that would be more like the inanimate creation. Man, birds, the land, the cities. Even the most solid, stable things, everything's falling apart before the Lord, before his fierce anger. You see the devastation before you see at the end the source of it. That maybe makes that stand out more. This is 
a result of the fierce anger of God, he is reversing the whole creative process. Comments and questions on this passage? Now, who's speaking here? Yes. <laughs> uh, I think either. Yeah. Or both. Yeah, you have that a lot in Jeremiah. You know, this won't be the first time or last time that, that you, uh, you see a kind of, well, this could be God, this could be Jeremiah. Really, either works fine in this case, I think. Other questions or comments? Okay, uh, 27 to 31. Thus says the Lord, the whole land Yeah, I will not execute a complete destruction. For this year shall know, the heavens are bound to be dark. Because I have spoken, I have purpose. And I will not change my mind, nor will I transform it. But the sound of the horseman and bowman, every city flees. They go into the thickest and climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken. No man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lover despises you. They seek your life, for I heard a cry as a woman in labor, in anguish as one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, lifting out her hand, saying, Ah, woe with me, for I think before murderers. Some very interesting things here. The whole land in 27 shall be a desolation. You know, and everything's mourning the cosmos, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. That's something he's going to say again a couple of times in the near context. Uh, God is going to destroy it, but it won't be complete destruction. God is preserving a remnant in order to bless, in order to fulfill his promises to Abraham, etc. That's an amazing thing. If I had been the Lord, <laughs> I would have given the complete destruction a long time ago. But God is very merciful. But it's going to be bad. The earth shall mourn. The heavens will go dark. Because I have spoken, I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor turn will I turn from it. Nothing can stop God's onslaught. The decree is fixed. Now, why is that? Why would God say, I will not change my mind? Perhaps because they will not change their mind? That's exactly right. I believe that's the case. Judah refused to repent. God refuses to relent in terms of the judgment. The people have not turned back to him. He will not turn back from his punishment against them. So it's going to be bad. The, the sound of the horsemen and the bowmen. The cities flee to the thickets, to the rocks. Cities are devastated, just, uh, forsaken. Everybody's trying to hide. You know, their aim is survival. They don't care where they have to go. They're just trying to get away. But now look at verse 30. Amazing. And you, O desolate one, what will you do? <laughs> Although you dress in scarlet. Although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold. Although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lovers despise you, they seek your life. So what do you see in the response of God's people here? One last try at harlotry. <laughs> yes! You've really got several things going on here, but I think that's exactly right. She was trying to almost seduce her invaders. You know, she's trying to doll herself up. These nations are nations that she has had alliances with from time to time, and she's had treaties with, and she's given her love to. And so she's trying to get herself all fixed up. 
you know, so she can get all, you know, their loving attention. That wasn't going to work. Uh, they despised her and sought her life. You know, sometimes we think the, that we've got to find some way of, of beautifying ourselves for our idols. They will not help us. They've turned on us. But I think in another sense you can look at it this way. What would you think? Here's this devastating judgment imminently uh, arriving. It's, it's just right around the corner. And what's she thinking about? Business as usual. Yeah, nonchalant, carefree. She wants to look good. You know, I mean, can you imagine somebody, you know, standing on dynamite, just about to get blown up, all preoccupied with cosmetics, you know, trying to make sure the hair is just right and getting all the makeup on just right and all that. And we know the clock is ticking. What, 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 does that see, what does that look like? Kind of like the way Jezebel was. Mm -hmm. She was making sure she put on her makeup knowing she was going to die. I was going to go there. That's exactly right. She dolled herself up in 2 Kings 9 only to be thrown down and splattered. Gannon? Yes. Daniel 5. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, he was partying it up. The night the Persians took over. <laughs> it's like, there's something wrong with this picture. You know, for her to prepare like she's going to a party on the eve of her destruction, people are blind to their true condition. <clears throat> you know, sometimes we can act like everything's okay and we convince ourselves it is. Reminds me of the church at Laodicea. You know, she was, you know, thought she was rich and well-clothed and in need of nothing. You know, you don't know that you're poor and miserable and blind and naked. You know, you guys don't realize you're in terrible condition. You think everything's okay. Isn't that the way we are sometimes? Oblivious to the reality, all just trying to worry about superficial things. In literal terms, it's amazing how much effort some people put into their, you know, external, you know, beautification when they're about to be destroyed by God. Sometimes we just don't want to accept the truth. You're right. It's right in front of us. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's where they were at. The truth was staring them in the face, and they did not want to see it. Yeah. Chuck. Um, God's faithfulness here is, is impressive. I mean, he'd just been talking about um, the trumpet sounding and this, this army coming. And Jeremiah's interpretation of this to me, in 23 through 26, is that there's going to be complete devastation. Um, so you have the undoing of creation that we talked about. Um, in 27, Lord's res God's response to that is there's going to be devastation, but not completely. Um, and, and it's, I mean, I think back to, to the rainbow um, that God has placed in the sky as a reminder to himself of the promise not to destroy. Uh, and just, I mean, obviously, they were deserving of other devastation. And Jeremiah recognized that. But God's response is punishment, yes, but devastation, no. And, and just his faithfulness to that promise that he made so long ago um, impresses me. I mean, uh, that God was willing to preserve and bless a remnant out of this is remarkable. Yeah. He's a God who always provides hope. Yes. Yes. If you think about it this way, God's wrath is totally understandable. The marvel is his grace. You look at verse 30 and then look at 31. You know, 30 is God's people as a woman primping, getting herself all dolled up, and 31, she's a woman doing what? And how does that feel? Not so pleasant. Never experienced that, but uh, it does. It's not a. It's not a pleasant experience. She's gasping for breath. Labor pains upon her. Begging, you know, stretching out her hands to her killers, you know, begging for mercy, you know. So this this beautified 
you know, woman is now a desperate woman with labor pains about to be slaughtered. Comments or questions? Stephen. Are there any connections between that image uh, of God bringing, you know, the faithful remnant out of unfaithful people and some of the images, even that you see like Revelation, like the dragon and the woman giving birth and the labor of Israel, like Micah 4 and 5. I don't know if, because it seems like this is a pretty wicked woman in labor here, whereas I think we're supposed to more see a righteous woman in labor giving birth to Messiah. Are there connections there, or is that... There may be some, but here you don't see the outcome as positive. You know, in some of those passages, like Micah, you see the judgment and the, the, the pain of that as bringing a new child, as bringing hope, as being a blessing. So the pains that you go through lead to a blessing. Here I think the labor is just the pain. <laughs> it's like, like Hosea where they, they give birth to the wind. You know, they go through all the labor pains and then there's nothing to, to show for it. Right, exactly. Yes, good good application, good, good passage. Mindy. Yeah, I'm that she's even in labor here, like at least in the New American Standard, it just sounds like she's in anguish as if. So it's an analogy to the pain. That's what yeah. I was <coughs> Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have some very similar figures that can be used in more than one way. One of the struggles we have in Bible study is sometimes always assuming a figure is being used to the same effect or a proverbial statement. <coughs> You've got several things like that. Um, you take, just think of a couple of things, the lion imagery. What, if you think about a lion in the Bible, <coughs> what does that remind you of? Power. Power. Satan, roaring lion seeking whom it may devour, or Jesus, Jesus Revelation 5, for example. So, I mean, same figure, totally different context. What about leaven? Does that remind you of? The corrupting influence of sin. What else does it remind you of? The unleavened bread. The unleavened bread, what? Yes. And the idea of the, the leaven put in the meal that causes the whole mass to be leavened. The, the, the principle of the kingdom spreads and, and influences everything. So there's a lot of things like that. Um, I often illustrate it with Revelation 3 um, as kind of a principle of how not to do Bible study. <laughs> um, because in uh, the, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, I put before you an open door. And that what people often do with that is say, open door, open door. Where in the Bible is it talking about an open door? And they run to a passage that maybe talks about an, a, an evangelistic opportunity, like 2 Corinthians 2 or Colossians 4. Rather than looking at the context and realizing Jesus has the key of David, and he is opening the door to the kingdom of God and its blessings to the Philadelphian Christians. And no synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not can close the door that Jesus has opened. So the open door in the context is the door into the messianic blessings. It's not in the context the door to an evangelistic opportunity. But we often do concordant study or cellular column reference study or jump to another passage study more than we look at the context. First thought, look at the context. Yes, some contexts may use labor pains as being the difficulty you go through on the way to the blessing, but it doesn't appear to be that here. So don't always think that a figure has to mean the same thing in every context. I just think that's a typical mistake we make. And, and we, you know, anytime, I, I remember when I was in uh, Sao Paulo living, there was a young man who was converted, sharp young man, and he eventually learned a lot more. But <laughs> he would like to make some comments in Bible study. And he had a Bible that had a center column reference. And, and he would just inevitably, whatever passage we were studying, he would say, 
oh, this is like such and such. And you turn over to another passage. Well, sometimes there was some application and sometimes there was none. But I, start, I realized finally what he was doing. And uh, it's, it's a common thing we do is mostly trying to say, oh, this is like that. Instead of first trying to say, here in this context, here's the meaning. That's uh, obviously not just a Jeremiah statement, but that gave me the opportunity to springboard to one of my uh, you know, pet sermons. So. Comments on any of this through chapter 4? Okay, chapter 5, we're in Jeremiah 5. Would somebody read 1 to 6? 